Welcome to Camp Pockets Piano Talk. I am pianist Migo, and I serve as president of the Contemporary Art Music Project, or CAMP. CAMP is an organization that promotes innovative art music and collaborates with composers and performing artists. One of many activities we do is our podcast series. Our hosts explore a wide range of topics from marginalized composers in the music history to current collaborations. Piano Talk brings you new piano repertoires and composers who write, wrote them. Tonight, I am your host, and I'm delighted to have composer Anthony Green. Hello. Hi, Anthony. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and it's uh, so nice to have you here. Yes, it's really. always great to speak with you. Yes. Yeah. Um, I actually have an odd question. Actually, I was wondering because you're, you know, the you're Anthony R. Green, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, what's your middle name? <laughs> oh, my middle name is Rashan. It's R A S H O N N. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because I just realized I never asked you. Yeah, it's uh, came to my mind. It's oh, like, yeah. I should ask and I should know the middle name. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not necessary, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, I like to go by Anthony R. Green because Anthony Green, there are so many Anthony Greens out there and there are right. even two other Anthony Green composers. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and there's an Anthony Green, there are two Anthony Green pianists as well. Mm. Um, one of them is an older man who taught one of my friends. And that same friend premiered a piece of mine. So on his Ooh. bio, he writes that <laughs> he studied with Anthony Green in England and premiered a piece by Anthony Green. But it's two different people, and nobody right. knew that it was two different people. And <laughs> right. Yeah, it's crazy. So the R just makes everything very clear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I thought I should ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, we usually start with um, the guests you know, background, we'd like to know uh, our guest um, um, in, in personal level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, we'd like to know, you know, your kind of um, first encounter with music uh, and uh, well, you were a pianist, so oh, yeah. a, a piano. Um, and you know who inspired you to be a musician, and you know who, whom you listen to, or um, uh, anything that that made you a composer and musician. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I was in kindergarten, there was a piano in the corner. And my kindergarten teacher used to play some simple melodies and I would look at his hands and listen to the music. And then I would play the melodies back. I would 
figure out mm-hmm. how to play them. And he told my mom that I have a talent and mm-hmm. it's worth exploring. And my mom used to take me to church growing up every Sunday. And when I was in church, I used to hear fantastic church musicians and I was in the choir and I would play light percussion instruments and I would do quite a number of musical things. Also, when I was in elementary school, one of my elementary school teachers noticed that I liked to play piano and there was a piano in the classroom there as well. So she used to have me play something every day after the students came back from recess. And sometimes I was really frustrated because I didn't know what to play. But Mm. honestly, that was one of those exercises that I didn't realize would shape a lot of who I became because I was forced to think on the spot, you know, every Mm -hmm. single day Mm -hmm. as a child. And I had started taking lessons with a local teacher and she quickly said that I was above everything that she usually teaches because she usually taught very, very beginning piano students. And so I then switched to a teacher who specialized in jazz. And I liked the lessons, but I still didn't feel as though it was a good fit. But then I was in the Providence Public Library, the Rochambeau branch, and I saw somebody reading some music that looked like, I think it was Albanese, maybe Mio. And I asked her what she's playing and we got into a conversation and she said that she studies with a teacher really close to the library named Susan Kelly and that I should check her out. So I started taking lessons with Susan Kelly and she became my primary piano teacher as a child. But during our lessons, she also taught me music theory. And she recommended that I go to chamber music camp. And that particular camp was the Apple Hill Center for Chamber Music in Keene, New Hampshire. So when I went to chamber music camp, I would play chamber music. I played the Dvorak Quintet, Mio Trio. Mm -hmm. I played Bach's musical offering, the Kegelstadt. Mm -hmm. Um, just so much wonderful chamber music. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I would have friends during our downtime, we would all sight read chamber music together, which was really fun. And I ended up composing some stuff while I was at the camp. And I composed music for my friends and for my family. Uh, People knew me as the piano person. And... And I think at that time, just the the knowledge of being able to major in composition wasn't strong. So everyone expected me to become this great pianist, and they said, you should mm-hmm. major in piano. And I applied everywhere for piano, and I got in to most places that I applied. And I started a piano major but quickly realized that um, that composition was really the place for me. 
it, yeah, it was in my freshman year, I would hang out with all of the freshman composition majors. And one of them saw that I was writing an opera and heard some pieces that I wrote for some friends and basically said, yeah, I think you should double major. So <laughs> I started a double major my sophomore year. And uh, then I dropped the the piano major. So that's a little bit of how I became the musician that I am today, uh, leaving out all of the very disastrous moments. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, you said um, there was something missing when you were taking this uh, jazz piano lesson. And uh, what was that? What, what did you feel uh, not, not complete or not satisfied? Yeah, I think there was this element that wasn't challenging enough and also it wasn't satisfying enough. I th I think that the teacher was great, but in the same way that people don't like Brussels sprouts or beets, I just didn't really like <laughs> <laughs> playing jazz somehow when I was growing up, so... And that is no indication that I don't like jazz music. I think mm -hmm. jazz is a great form of art. I think I might not like it because I know I'm really bad at it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't like playing it because I'm really bad at it. <laughs> But I do love listening to jazz. And, you know, it, it's such a powerful, powerful genre. Yeah. Well, I mean... Uh, probably it's similar question when you, you kind of uh, um, go towards uh, uh, to being a composer rather than a pianist. Um, there, there's something also you felt that it's it's not quite, you know, there just to to be a pianist. I mean, it's not quite satisfying yeah. just to be a pianist. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I think this comes from my creative nature. So when I was younger, while playing the piano and composing, I took some clay classes. My mom uh, encouraged me to enroll in local clay classes at Rhode Island School of Design. So I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. And I also loved to knit and to crochet and to cook and to do macrame. I dabbled in bookbinding, in needlepoint, in cross-stitch. I made friendship bracelets. I was obsessed with origami. And I loved doing magic tricks, figuring out magic tricks. <laughs> so I was constantly doing stuff and making stuff. I wasn't really into playing sports or watching sports. And I didn't really enjoy reading fiction. I read a little bit of fiction, but mostly because it was required in school. But if someone gave me a how-to book, you know, how to make paper planes or how to make paper, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I did because next door there was a Japanese uh, handmade paper company and mm -hmm. at one point I took a <laughs> workshop on how to make paper and I went home and I made my own 
a paper making device and made a very <laughs> small postcard. Um, yeah, I mean, that was my childhood. I really just loved figuring out how to do stuff. I was obsessed with arts and crafts. And my mom figured this out and got me some lovely magazines that encouraged doing stuff DIY. So when you combined this curiosity for making stuff and figuring out how things work, and you combine that with music, I think that's what makes a composer. So I remember even just starting composition lessons, just being so fascinated when my first uh, composition teacher, Dr. Martin Amlin, he mentioned something about symmetrical structures. And I just thought, oh, what is this? I, I'm really curious. Mm -hmm. I want to figure out everything. And so <laughs> I would go to the library and just listen to music and pull out scores and do self-study because I just wanted to figure out everything and to know everything. And I'm still that way. You know, I, I mm. still, I'm still not ever satisfied with just being known for doing one thing. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, I always saw, you know, like I, um, I'm a pianist and I uh, also feel like I'm always making something mm. um, to, um, I mean, I learn pieces that's composed, but um, to make that, to bring that to life that I always felt like I have to find that something um, and I always have to, um, kind of create something, uh, create logic and create kind of s musical sense mm -hmm. to present as uh, uh, performing art. Definitely. Yeah. And as someone who has composed for you, I think the way you bring life to music is much more professional than I could ever do. <laughs> <laughs> which is why it's best that you do that and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't certainly think that way, but anyway. <laughs> um, no, but it's, I mean, I think it's just great. I, I consider both as just really, you know, performing and, and composing both really creative and the more I think that way, I think it, it really helps me to uh, perform and learn music and uh, all that. And but it's it's still you know uh, I I often talk with my students about this that how I learned so much from uh, mm. composers and you know they sometimes sit down you know you did this uh, also when you visited here. And a lot of composers did, they j would just sit down and play and, uh, and it, it can be any kind of music. Um, and it, it's always to the point and it always makes sense. And it's always touching. 
And I think that's that's what I learned the most from from the wow. composers. Well, that's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true. It's true, really. It's yeah. really true. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you know you get. I mean, you get so trapped into this like talking about the technical things, and you very often forget about uh, things that. Are most fundamental. That's true, and I think it's because there's so many technical aspects to discuss when it comes to bringing a new piece to life, and even to creating a new piece. So the conversations are endless, and sometimes the conversations are quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> But ultimately, we have these conversations just so we can get to that one moment where we don't have to think about anything, and we just perform a right. piece or listen to somebody else performing the piece, and make that presentation cause new conversations and new aspects mm -hmm. of. Considering approaches to music, and I think that process is really cool because it's it implies that we'll never be finished, and so we But... hear quite often, especially from conservative listeners and conservative performers, that new music always sounds the same, and that composers are just scraping at the bottom of the barrel and stuff like that. But it's not true at all, you know. I think the the reason why people think this way is just because their minds is their mind is is closed off to accepting new mm -hmm. forms of thought and new forms of approaching music, um, and they have this fear that if they let too much in, then anything goes, and they're very narrow. Definitions of music will be challenged to the point where they have to change who they are, but that's not true. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can like Ariana Grande, and you can like Erica Badu, and you can like Florence Price, and it doesn't mean that <laughs> you have to change who you are just because right. you like something new. Um, so. It, it and it's it's really difficult sometimes to get through to the people who who just want to keep a very very narrow definition of what music is or what music should be, but it's those moments when we're creating and we're exploring and we stumble upon something new. Those are the moments that really attract me, and I think those are the moments that attract the people that I want to work with as well. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's so many, so many, so many piano works written, and of course, written in the past. We have so much repertoire, huge repertoire, mm -hmm. and we still have a lot of works these days. And um, what, what are the interesting? Piano works that you uh, found recently, and I mean, you're still very active in terms of performing. So, um, any any interesting works that you found these days? Well, recently or just throughout 
my research. <laughs> oh, just, uh, recently, because I think if we talked about like throughout your, you know, your life and research, <laughs> and, and that's gonna be like we will have to talk about it overnight. So. <laughs> right? Just yeah, we'll stay in these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. I would say a a, re, a relatively recent piece that I think is fascinating is a sonata by Winton Kelly Stone Guest. He was a student at Boston Conservatory, and I'm pretty sure he wrote the piece when he was a student there. But now, if I remember correctly, he resides mostly in Portugal. And um, and the piece is just fascinating. It's mm. it has these very romantic approaches to pianism, but it's solidly a contemporary piece. And I'm always fascinated by these juxtapositions, mm-hmm. um, especially mm-hmm. just being a pianist myself and loving Chopin and the way that Chopin feels. Um, so that piece definitely spoke to me in a big way when I when I came across it. And then practically any piece by Jessica Mays, I am just infatuated by. And she also is a fantastic pianist. So she writes very well for the piano. Um, and she has such a wonderful and unique sound world. So mm-hmm. she's she's developed what I think is is her sound, um, and I, I always am fascinated when composers really develop their voice and explore within their voice and have a signature sound. So yeah, I think those are. I didn't name a specific piece by Jessica Mays, but she had these rhythm etudes. That she um, that she displayed on Instagram, and so <laughs> <laughs> they're just really fascinating gems, and um, and I want to play them, of course. And I'll also mention "Recline" by Montati Masebe. Montati Masebe is a wonderful composer in South Africa, and Recline was composed for the Castle of Our Skins Black Composer Miniature Challenge. And it was one of the few pieces that was, uh, well, it, it's actually for piano and viola, but the viola part is just knocking. So the piano part is quite prominent. And it mm. almost feels like it could be performed as a solo piano piece. But Montati has the pianist play the opening measures with just the index finger. And it starts out slow and it gets faster and faster and faster. And for me, it's this exploration of innocence and it symbolizes development and how life, even history, just speeds up and speeds up and speeds up. But it's firmly within this South African sound and rhythm structure. Mm. And when you hear it, it sounds like it's in a completely different time signature than it is. And I'm just so in love with this piece. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. I, uh, yeah, I'll have to check those out. Yeah, maybe. definitely. And the composers. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, well, I mean, we can talk about your works and uh, this solo piano piece um, to Anna Karen in the U.S. Yeah, so this piece, there's, there's, I don't want to say it's a funny story, but it's one of those coincidental stories. So when I studied at New England Conservatory during my master's degree, I took classes with Stephen Drury, and I also went to the Summer Institute for Contemporary uh contemporary performance practice, I always stumble on this name because the first time I attended it, it was the Summer Institute for Contemporary Piano Performance. And Stephen Jury ended up expanding it to include other instruments and composition and voice. So that's how it turned into contemporary performance practice. And so Stephen and I ended up becoming buddies and I went to see him perform, and after the concert, there was a reception. So Victor Rosenbaum was there, and Stephen just yanked Victor and said, Victor, this is Anthony. Anthony, Victor's doing this Debussy response project, and I think you should write a piece for him. <laughs> so... <laughs> So Victor said, yeah, sure, you can write a piece. And I knew that I could write this piece in two seconds because I played lots of Debussy and the specific uh, pieces to respond to were preludes. And I had played Ferre d'Artifice, the fireworks, the last prelude when I was in high school. So I immediately told him, yeah, just just you should know that I'm going to write a piece for you. I'll get it to you by January and it's going to respond to fireworks. So nobody else can touch that prelude, right? So, <laughs> um, so when you think about the very last page contains these giant chords, five notes in, in one hand, actually four notes in one hand, in the left hand and five notes in the right hand. And then after the chords, there's this big glissando and a little sparks. And then there's this rumbling in the bass. And above that, Debussy quotes the Le Marseillaise, the national anthem of France. And I just thought, well, I could respond to this prelude by taking the national anthem of the United States and also just commenting upon it and, and writing this piece that basically implies all of the political backwardsness that exists in the United States. Even starting from the fact that the national anthem is the tune of a song that was sung during drinking rituals in a high society boys club from the UK. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that tune is called To an Acreon in Heaven. 
And that's why I named the piece to Anacreon in the U.S. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically what this piece does is it has a rumbling in the bass, and I apply all sorts of permutations to the national anthem, and then I apply my own melodic commentary, and then the very last chord is the chord that Debussy would have composed if the chord sequence in Fert d'Artifice would have continued. So everything about this piece comes directly from Debussy, but through my own compositional voice and my own political voice, especially through my voice as a Black person born and raised in the United States. Great. Uh, well, let's listen to the piece.
This was to Anacreon in the US by Anthony Green. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> It's so powerful. And, you know, I was talking to、um, someone else, some other musician today, and how about, you know, how powerful music is, really. Definitely. Music, it has a way of communicating very complex ideas and philosophies. And I think all art does this. Dance does this.、Mm -hmm. Architecture does this. Visual arts does this. And performance art does this. And music does this in its own unique way. I think mostly because of the temporal nature of music combined、mm -hmm. with this,、um, with the association of pitch and reg register and rhythm. You know, music has this ability to increase your heart rate and then automatically kind of leave you breathless, but then、mm -hmm. slow down and force you. To concentrate. And I think saying this, now you who have played my piano concerto multiple times、um, are recognizing, especially in the first movement, that moment after the introduction when the music just sort of relaxes and the percussion、mm -hmm. takes over with these、yeah. body beats. For me, that's a moment when the audience can take. Time to think about what just happened, you know. <laughs> <Right> . And then, as the audience is thinking about that, they're slowly entering this new world where the percussionists are thinking about invading the space and the mind and the environment of the pianist, right? So, I, I think about these things quite often when I'm composing. What the audience will experience and how I can control that experience, both philosophically and physically, really. Because when, when you see a pianist playing something virtuosic, you yourself are physically altered. You know, it's, it's a physical experience. And I think composers should consider these things. Not every composer does consider these things. But Robert Hogan, who was one of my teachers who unfortunately passed away recently, he taught me to really consider this element of composition as well. And I think every composer should, because at the end of the day, we are creating experiences when we compose. At least I want to approach my composition as a method of creating these very. Communicative experiences. Absolutely. That's really fascinating. And yeah, I, I um, uh, talk to my students about it. I often talk about it. And you know, that you really have to think about your audience, your listeners, and that, you know, your goal is to、um, move them and touch them and, uh, Give them new ideas. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I、uh, whenever I perform 
solution that's how i feel it's just really powerful piece mm, thank you <laughs> yeah yeah well, the power can't exist without you so oh thank you <laughs> Um, but this uh, beautiful uh, beginning of the second movement, actually, um, that you you talked about this, you know, giving time to the um, to the listeners um, and kind of reflect and react to what's happening to the music currently. Um, and I always found the second beginning of the opening of the second movement. It's just so so soothing it's almost like um seducing in a way it's like so deceiving me <laughs> deceiving me sweet and comforting and then like whatever happens like later it's just so um shocking <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that movement had to start that way because if it didn't start at that level, then the very last moments of the piece wouldn't be as powerful. So the journey is extremely important for me. But also what, what the, the symbolism of the, the pieces that I compose, especially the concerto, I think that informs much of my musical decision making. So when I started to think about how the second movement should become, of course, I, I envision quite a number of different ways that people can interpret this opening. Um, mm -hmm. But when you think about the overall message of the concerto, basically being this woman who is navigating all of this crap and mm -hmm. still coming out on top and controlling everything. Well, there are moments in this woman's life when she has to be patient with men who think that they know everything, but they don't. So mm -hmm. a, part, <laughs> a part of what I was going for with the opening of this second movement is that. It's when a woman is just extremely patient mm -hmm. with either a stupid man or a group of stupid <laughs> men and when a woman is patient with men they have to repeat things over and over again and they have to do it rather slowly so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, let's listen to the second movement and then we can keep talking. Excellent.
It was Solution, the second movement uh, by Anthony R. Green. Yay. Yay. Um, and I think uh, I would like to, well, I would like to talk about this uh, last piece that you, uh, we worked on together. Yes. <laughs> I'm going medley. Yes. It's the pandemic piece. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so I think many of us went a little bit mad during those first couple months of uh, yes <laughs> of COVID's outbreak. I think many of us went mm -hmm. very mad as well, not just a little bit mad, but a lot <laughs> mad. I'm not sure if I went mad, to be honest. Um, I hate saying this because I, I'm not saying this to make people jealous or anything like that but much of my life is spent indoors composing so when the pandemic hit and i just stayed indoors and i composed it almost felt like nothing really changed all that much to be honest <laughs> <laughs> you know on top of the fact that i had 14 flights canceled and right, you know, right. lots of gigs canceled but I just thought, well, I have to compose all these pieces anyway, so now I can just kind of stay at home and compose. And then I ended up getting this university job, and I was working out a little bit, but I had to stop working out because the job got in the way of working out and also my compositions and even just the labor of keeping track of, of the pandemic, you know? Mm -hmm. I would wake up and see how many people had died, you know, see those numbers rising, knowing that those numbers were completely off because it's impossible to track every single person who had it. Mm -hmm. And even just listening to some of my friends who basically said, yeah, I'm sure I had it uh, twice, but I wasn't counted because I stayed home and I had all the symptoms, but nobody really knew. So how could I be counted? And um, just all of these stories everything just piled up on to each other and and made me busy but in a completely different way so perhaps that was a little bit of how how I went mad you know <laughs> I enjoyed the the ability to just stay home and compose but then being busy in all sorts of other ways and they were all digital because we couldn't leave our houses. And then the place where I live, it's all open. So in terms of sound traveling, there's really kind of no space in the house to have a completely silent room. So sometimes if my husband was on a meeting and I was on a meeting, there was lots of overlap and <laughs> you know, I would hear everything that he was saying. 
and sometimes the sound settings wouldn't work so he would have to not use headphones and I would be downstairs in a meeting and I just couldn't hear anything or I needed to record something and then the phone would ring and it would ruin a take so just all of these types of madnesses <laughs> happened <laughs> so when you asked me to compose a piece not only was I thinking about madness but as soon as I started thinking about madness that made me think about one of my favorite things to do as a child which was Mad Libs and that's what gave me the idea to create a score that was basically a Mad Lib and I'm not sure if this has ever been done before. It could have been, to be honest, because <laughs> composers do all sorts of kooky things. Mm -hmm. But I like to think that I am the first composer to create a Mad Lib score. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Especially one that has three languages. So... <laughs> <laughs> so it was great working with you on the text and getting the Korean version of the text and then I made the Dutch version and then there was the English version of course and I'm so glad and honored that it's a part of a project that has equally kooky pieces because mm -hmm. you know sometimes <laughs> I write a kooky piece and then it gets performed on a program with Chopin and Mozart right and I just think this does not work you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was great I I had so much fun <laughs> I have to say yeah and was this the first time that you had to raise your hand and <laughs> pretend to type? I think so, yeah. Okay. And good. I, yeah, yeah, it was uh, first time. And with this project, I, I did a lot of things for the first time. And uh, it was it was just so much fun, really. Yeah. And yeah, um, I think that's, what this kind of project uh that's what made me kind of go through you know this times and that we are still um dealing with a, a lot of difficulties in the world and it's so hard to take all of in sometimes and mm -hmm. uh I, I i think you know like we really focus on music I, that's kind of only way we can we can deal with this it's otherwise true. Then, yeah it's very true i think if we spent all day every day thinking about how how much injustice there is in the world mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. we would be permanently in a state of madness right so, <laughs> right especially yeah. now with the war in yes. ukraine yes it's just craziness it is it is yeah well um well let's listen to i'm going mad lips um yeah and then i'll move on to next question okay Thank you. 
나의 청록 거북이가 나에게 희망을 준다. 언제 나는 부탄으로 돌아와서 목련꽃 내음을 맞고 미역국을 맛볼 수 있을까? 나로서는 새 구이를 사용하는 것이 불가능하다. 그렇지 않으면 나는 18금 벌금을 당할 것이다. 총장은 갈수 없다. 총장의 마음은 비밀스럽기 때문에 그는 아무것도 할수 없다. 언제 나의 과학자는 다시 확대할까? 언제 세계의 자궁은 예전에 그랬던 것처럼 씻을까? 
우리 다시 예전대로 돌아가야만 할까? 오케이, okay, that was I'm Going Mad Lives by Anthony Green. Yay. Anthony R. Green. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I uh, usually wrap this up with a question that's very important to younger generation of pianists, since this is piano talk. So, um, you know, they, they, I think they live in a quite different time. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know i always say that you you are not living in this time when uh horowitz was alive and when you can just go and win uh uh tchaikovsky competition and your life is set yeah it's not yeah. like that anymore no not at all so um what should they do and you know um i mean i i for me i think it's so critical to play uh, works by living composers and make this this uh, art music alive mm-hmm. um, and you any your uh, of your advice and your suggestion would be great yeah definitely well I'm not sure what has been said to be honest because you have had this podcast for some time and you've had some wonderful guests and I I don't know all of their answers and I don't want to repeat any of their their answers so of course I could easily tell everybody commissions new composers and I think um, everyone should be doing that regardless of what instrument you play Um, even if you don't play something very well you should commission a composer Um, But instead of just saying that, I think I'm going to say something that nobody will probably say. And I will say that there there are so many pianists in the world. So, so many pianists. And I really don't understand why there aren't piano six-hand ensembles. Mm-hmm. I just think whoever is listening to this, if you want a marketable idea that you can make a lot of money with and have a really successful career with, grab two of your favorite piano buddies and start <laughs> a piano six-hand trio and just find all of the weird, stupid repertoire for piano six-hand <laughs> And then ask composers to create less weird, better repertoire for piano sands. (laughs) And start an ensemble. There are quite a number of piano duos out there. Um, And then there's that group um, that does bowed piano. And they're wonderful with what they do. But honestly, I've never come across a piano six-hand ensemble, at least not one that is playing really good music. Mm-hmm. And the, the possibilities are endless, A. And B, ask any composer if they have a piece for piano six-hand. I'm pretty sure if you <laughs> ask 100 composers, then 
maybe one of them will say maybe. And if that one composer says maybe, that composer actually says, is saying in their head, I don't, but I can turn this one piece into a piece. (laughs) (laughs) So technically I do have a piece for Piano Six Hands. If anybody is interested in it, it's a really bad piece that I wrote (laughs) when I was an undergrad, but it was performed twice and it's lots of fun to play, even though it's a really bad piece. But (laughs) I would love to spend much of my later career writing good music for Piano Six Hands because it really doesn't exist. That's true. I mean, there's some pieces out there. There are but... lots of good arrangements, I guess. But oh, like yeah. original pieces for Piano Six Hands. I mean, even Schubert didn't write a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Litzt has something because he's always doing crazy stuff like that. But I don't, I don't think yeah, piano six hands. What's out there? Yeah, it's what it is. Exactly. And yeah, go for a piano six hands. There yes. you go. <laughs> so there you go. And then if anybody really is going to take this advice, then what you should do is find three more buddies and make a two piano 12 hands. Oh, ensemble. nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And yeah, I mean, you know, you can um, play and I don't know, like push the pianos in the park and you can play this like big piano ensemble totally. outdoor. I think it will be amazing. It would be really so incredible. I, I think so. I yes. love that. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I could talk to your audiences all day about the many ideas I have for ensembles. But I would say that's the one that I would love to see most. Great. Yeah. Well, listeners, (laughs) you got this. So you have to, you know, make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Make it come true. So... Well, Anthony, thank you so much for being on the show and being such a delightful guest. Oh, my pleasure. It's great talking with you, and I can't wait to see you again yes. and to give you a hug. Yes, same here. <laughs> thank you. Support us by donating. You can go to our website, www.contemporaryartmusicproject.org, and simply click the Donate button. Help us continue our podcast festival and other exciting projects thank you for listening i will see you next time with more piano music